This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. That intro always fires up my guests. And today, Good Faith Fam, I brought on not only one of the most interesting and brilliant people I know, but also my good friend, his credentials are bananas. He's a scholar of biblical literature, theology, interpretation. He's the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College in New York City, where he's also a professor of biblical studies, and he's the host of the fabulous Biblical Mind podcast. And finally, and most importantly, He's an absolutely rad lunch date. He's Drew Johnson, and we're going to talk about <laughs> the biblical world and why and how it matters. But first, let's uh, set this bad boy up. Okay, so we've been talking lately about the book of Numbers, and that means it's time to address the elephant in the room or, uh, well, the cow, you know, the red one. Yes, that's right. It's time to talk about the red cow, guys. So, okay, if you've watched South Park, then you know the point of the red cow or in the immortal words of Eric Cartman, the ginger cow, is to be a sign of the end times approaching. Uh, Now, obviously, that's a good reason not to get your theology from South Park, because the actual purpose of the red cow, if you read the book of Numbers, is that it's used in the ritual to cleanse a person from the impurity you contract when you come into contact with a corpse. Uh, Now, without getting into the significance of the Bible's conception of purity and impurity and its relationship to life and death, let's just start at the level of ritual. So there's this great and sometimes controversial philosopher and Indologist named Fritz Stahl who wrote this great paper back in the mid-70s that I'm not sure I totally agree with, but which is nevertheless like deeply profound and shaped a lot of my thinking on this. And it's called The Meaninglessness of Ritual, in which he basically argued that ritual could be, and sometimes still is, pure activity. It doesn't have to have some other symbolic meaning. It's a series of activities performed for its own sake. And in fact, ritual, he argued, developed before meaning in much the same way that, like in language, you can have syntax before semantics. You can spot patterns without the patterns meaning anything else. Like think about how you doodle when you're bored, right? The doodles can totally have an internal logic and coherence and even be predictable without meaning anything, right? Like remember that cool S doodle we used to draw back in the 90s, right? It doesn't mean anything, but super predictable. Okay, so now let's get back to the red cow. So if you read Numbers chapter 19, you'll see this really detailed ritual for removing corpse impurity. Now, at the level of syntax, the ritual makes total sense. You can figure out the mechanics of how all the pieces fit together, when to do what, and what order to do it in, and there's a coherence to them. But do all those pieces mean anything? Do they symbolize something? Do they have semantics? So put differently, if you didn't know anything about how to get out corpse impurity, could you have reasoned out the red cow ritual from scratch? Now, as far as ancient Jewish tradition, like nearly 2,000 years old is concerned, the answer is not only no, but a gleeful no, right? Like, in fact, Jewish tradition regards the ancient Hebrew word chok, which is usually translated as law and which is also the word that the Bible used to describe the red cow ritual, as referring to just this sort of thing, an activity that God commands us to do that isn't irrational, but it's non-rational. And if you think about it, God gives commands like this all the time, commands that are non-rational or commands that apply only to a particular people or commands that apply by virtue of something particular that happened in history, like the Exodus, or commands that apply only to a particular time or a place. And this conception of God, both the kinds of things he'd command us to do and the kind of behavior he'd expect from us, would have seemed crazy 
to Greek philosophers, right? So for the Greek world, divine command should always be universal, mathematical, applicable under all circumstances. Things like history, particularity, difference. The Greek thinkers are aware of these things. They just don't think they have anything to do with God. And the reason I mention this is because to the extent that the Western world, and maybe America most of all, rests upon these two foundations of the classical Greek and Roman world on the, on the one hand and the biblical world on the other, it's important to be as clear-minded as we can about the differences between those two foundations. So what can we say, in other words, about Hebraic civilization, a Hebraic worldview, a Hebraic society? What would those things mean? And how can this help us better understand ourselves, the American experiment, and how to build a virtuous society wherever we might live. And so to unpack all of this, I brought on the director, the literal director for the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College in New York City, professor of biblical thought and interpretation. My amazing friend Drew Johnson is here. Drew, thank you so much for being here. It is a genuine pleasure. And with that setup, I am now terrified. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're not going back to the red cow. Don't worry about that. (laughs) This is the one that the Talmud, they said, nobody knows what this means. Maybe Solomon. Maybe, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Potentially. Over, under. Anyway, so I want to actually start with you because you're super fascinating. So your background. Okay. You go from serving, I believe, in the Air Force. Air Force, yeah. And then you're involved in like counter-narcotics operations in Columbia and from there, you go to on to become a professor of biblical studies, you know, like the usual path. Yes. Right. So and I was and you, I was a pastor for about 10 years in between. At, right. Exactly. Right. Even more normal. I should have yeah. I, I should have known. So can you take us through that journey? Like, how did that happen? I actually don't think we've ever talked about this. And I'm super curious to hear the story. Uh, well, it's a long story. So the short of the long is I dropped out of high school when I was 17, 16, because I was in my third attempt at a freshman year. And uh, I was getting arrested quite a bit. I was in a punk band, I was skinhead, acting crazy, not racist skinhead. Stepdad was African-American, my sister's African-American. So, but yeah, I was basically just going to nowhere uh, in my life. And so I moved in with my dad and we talked about like, all right, what are you gonna do with your life? You don't have a high school diploma. And so I got a GED and joined the Air Force Reserves and uh, spent about two years on active duty where I didn't do much but training. And then when I got in the reserve unit, like they were deploying all the time down to Colombia, mostly Colombia and Peru to do counter narcotics work because it was in the 90s. There was no wars going on. Uh, so <laughs> we're like was, in Tom Clancyville, you know, <laughs> exactly. It, I mean, the only combat zones were really like in South America. I mean, there are some other ones, but um, so you could go down and collect combat pay. I could pay for school. This is before the GI Bill. We got real, you know, all the guilt money where you get this great GI Bill. This is back when you got like $100 a month for the GI Bill. It didn't pay for anything, you know. So, uh, yes, I did about 10 deployments over five years. So I was in the reserves, but I was spending, you know, you know, a third of the year overseas deployed. So it was, it was a good gig. And uh, I, I went to college during that period. Studied psychology, thought that's what, what I wanted to do. And then a friend talked me into going to the seminary instead, which at that point, I'd become a Christian when I was about 20. And uh, I didn't really know what seminary, I wasn't in, raised in Christian culture really. So I, so I was like, well, explain to me what seminary is first, and then I'll think about it. And he explained it to me. And I thought, actually, I'm really interested in the philosophical theological questions. So I did four years of full-time seminary and uh, ended up, to my surprise, working as a pastor in a small uh, church in St. Louis and uh, eventually felt like really wanted to do more research. And so I worked and did a degree in philosophy and then went back and did more uh, Bible work and then eventually 
through what I would say God's providence is I was at Oxford giving a paper in philosophy at a philosophy conference and a guy said, hey, you need to meet this guy in St. Andrews who does like theology. I think you and him would think a lot. And so I met my, who turned out to be my future PhD supervisor and then moved me and my four young children and my wife over to Scotland for a couple of years, did my PhD and then kept on doing more academic stuff. And here I am. That's amazing. Okay. So I love this. And I want to come back to ritual, your military service and all that great stuff. But I want to start with the concept of a Hebraic world or Hebraic worldview. So what does it mean to you? Why is it important? Well, one, I think it's important because I think it's just highly neglected that, you know, when I look at the American enterprise, what's good about it? The the best things that we do. Let's start with easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> the best things that we do, including like how, how do we best understand the world around us, the cre- uh, creation? Like who, who actually understands with high degrees of skill and sophistication how the world actually functions in some ways physically and otherwise i think science we have to give it to science and engineering they actually have like mechanisms for understanding the world and we don't need to think about conflicts between religion and science we can just set all those to the side because they're kind of ridiculous anyways but super boring i'm yeah (laughs) so and then i started studying philosophy like i took my first philosophy class in a master's program when i was 30 something years old and i was shocked when to discover i'm reading plato and aristotle and going well this isn't how we think about the world at all it's not how our mathematics thinks about the world it's not how our views of astronomy think about the world like there are some ideas that are very helpful in there and i think that are conceptually uh good but, uh, you know, I was, at a, I was in Germany uh, last week in a conference with Mesopotamian scholars and Egyptologists and Hebrew Bible people. And, you know, the Mesopotamian people are, you know, they're pointing out as well, hey, these people are, are thinking in these ways that the, the Greeks will not help us out here and that, uh, that we need to appropriate. So as I looked around the world and I looked at issues of like justice and fairness and like all the best things we want for people to be treated equally no matter who they are for people who are vulnerable vulnerable to be protected and i'm looking around i just assumed in the world of philosophy and ancient philosophy it all i literally i assumed it all came from the greeks and as i'm reading the greeks i'm like wait they all have sex with their slaves they all (laughs) it's a highly structured system they all believe in a fairy tale about everything real is in the heavens uh, they all believe that this world is a lie, it's dece- deceitful, it's fundamentally problematic, and the, the goal is to escape it. I'm like, nobody I know believes that, uh, or at least nobody I know that understands the world believes that. And amazingly to me, I looked at the Hebrew Bible, and I'm like, wait, it's all right here. This is like, this is, <laughs> this is the system of thought. And then I just couldn't figure out why nobody sees this. Uh, and so one of my supervisors uh, said, well, maybe this is your PhD project, so... I'm with you a hundred percent. And it's funny. I had, I have had similar experiences where you're sort of, you're sort of reading Plato, Aristotle, you're reading, I think some of the pre-Socratics I'm, I'm much more into because they're a little weirder. <laughs> they're definitely weirder. Right. I've had this experience where you're like, okay, you think about the world for longer than five seconds and you're like, this place is super weird. The world that we live in. There's so much about it. I don't understand. There's so much about it. that's just odd and strange. And at the same time, there's so many things we want out of the world that seem insane, like human equality. Like that's a crazy thing to want. If you look at the stretch of human history, there are all sorts of things we want out of the world, like justice delivered to somebody, no matter what their station in life is. That's also historically speaking, 
ludicrous. And if I would point out too, even to want that is already yeah. in the world of the, the Hebrew notion of humanity, the Hebrew notion of community and society. You're already thinking Hebraically and feeling Hebraically at that point. Yes. And it's sort of like when you think about what does Hebraic thinking do for us, it's not Greek philosophy and Hebrew letters. It's actually right. It's actually an absurd but also like deeply aspirational and, and inspiring way to think about not just how the world should be, which it also is, but also how the world actually works mysteriously enough. So if you're thinking about kind of like what a, a good humanistic or liberal arts education or curriculum should look like, like have you given thought to how, how and where and in what order like Hebraic thought would slot in? I have because I've been talking to some headmasters of classical schools that I've corrupted with my thinking. And they're asking me, so, I mean, I had a headmaster recently email me and said, okay, I'm next year. Should I give them, should we do the Hebraic thought, Hebrew Bible, New Testament stuff first and then expose them later? I mean, pedagogically, how you teach these things, I'm not quite sure. I said to him, like, look, the Greco-Roman world gets the lead in every article written in classical education. So if it's not in Latin or Greek, then it didn't happen. You know, like Pixar didn't happen kind of thing. So I think it would not hurt to come on strong and just say, like, there's a very robust worldview uh, that actually looks a lot like ours and has all the stuff that we want, all the goods that people uh, want. And then I think if you I think if you fronted Hebrew thinking and then turned to Greco-Roman thought, I think you will... Uh, appreciate how weird Greco-Roman thought really is, how strange it is. I mean, Tom Holland, who's a classicist from Oxford, this is what happened to him as, as he got deeper and deeper into Greco-Roman thought. He's like, wait, I thought all my values and ethics and like government, I thought it all came from uh, the Greeks. And now I'm reading all this, this thinking and going, this, I'm more Christian than I realized. And every time he says it, I'm like, you mean you were Hebrew. Like everything that you're calling Christian <laughs> is from the Hebrew, but it's from the Torah. That would be like my critique of his book, Dominion, as well, which I think is a fantastic book. Yeah, fantastic book. Yeah, just swap out the word Christian with Hebraic or Torah or yeah. he, and you'd be fine. So I think I've had this experience because I do these like Twitter threads like on why read the Bible in Hebrew. and Yes, love those. And awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and the question I most often get when people reach out to me about those things, which is often, is oh my God, I wish I could learn or read Hebrew. Now, I usually have two reactions to that. One is awesome. Oh my God, let me try and help you. That's great. great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the second is I worry, um, and part of why I do these threads is because I worry that people consider language a barrier to understanding this world in a way that we've been trained kind of not to do for the classical world. So like, yeah, your reading of Plato and Aristotle is enriched by knowing classical Greek, even, you know, if even thinking about biblical literature, like if you wanted to read both, you know, the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew Bible or, you know, if it's a tradition, the Gospels or whatever, you know, it's enriched by being able to read them in, in you know, Koine Greek. But we don't tend to think of like Plato and Aristotle as the kind of thing that you can't read unless you understand Greek. Yeah. So how do you think about getting people into this world without them feeling like unless you're fluent in like Hebrew and Aramaic, you're out? Right. Well, well, I'm neither fluent in Hebrew or Aramaic, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I always tell people, 
a little bit of Hebrew goes a long way. I think that's the first thing. And Hebrew is, you know, as far as ancient languages go, it's a fairly simple alphabetic language. It's you have the squiggly line problem, which is like your first week of learning. After after you get the alphabet down it, and right to left, it really is like the first hurdle. But it's not a, it's actually not a big deal, as everybody knows who's who's learned it, coming even from non-Jewish backgrounds. And then just knowing a few, like there's a great book, I think it's by Matthew Schlimm, you know, 70 Hebrew words that every Christian should know. And he kind of goes <laughs> through and just like, here's the big one. Conceptually, these are the ones that are really loaded and used throughout uh, the Bible. And I think even simple things like now I tell my students, you know, who don't have to read Hebrew or Greek, there's websites where you can just go on. And what used to take me like an hour and 45 minutes of pulling books off shelves and cross-referencing, they can do in one click without any knowledge whatsoever. They can just, you know, like the Net Bible, you can just go on there, click on the word and say, oh, okay, this word ra'ah for evil. Oh, it's used 217 times. You can just click show me all 217 and, you, and it'll just pull a list. Yeah. And I just say like, look, you know, one of the things you can do is just use the tools that are there freely available to you. Just read through three dozen of those passages and how that word is used. And your mind will already start to see, like, especially with evil. I just did a 10 part podcast with uh, Passages Israel on this idea of evil. Like, it's just a much thicker notion of evil than you can possibly um, imagine. Or, or even good. Look at how the word good is used at Tov in so many different uh, settings. And just doing that little bit of work to understand what is going on. And what I would say, I say the thinking of the biblical authors. Certainly the biblical authors had their own conceptual world. And the biblical text reveal their conceptual world to us. But if we're just bound and determined to read our own concepts into everything to like you know say like well where do you go when you die i'm like well biblical authors in the old and new testament don't seem to really care about that question right uh but if you're going to read hell and heaven into every single passage well then go have fun with your bible uh and hopefully you won't do any long-term harm to anybody you know but uh (laughs) the tools are here and a little just a little bit of hebrew i mean a tiny bit the alphabet and knowing a few words uh, will will help you to understand that they had their own intellectual tradition that, that I think is worth exploring on its own rights. And honestly, it should be a class right alongside Socratic philosophy, East Asian philosophy. There should be a Hebrew philosophy uh, class in every single philosophy department. So speaking of the corporeality of biblical thought, so is the body underrated in contemporary American religion? Um, we are all like living Gnostics, right? I mean, you know yeah. Gnosticism way better than I do. So maybe I'm not using, I'm using the word like a sledgehammer. The first day of my class with freshmen, I'm like, hey, goal, goal number one in reading the Hebrew Bible is to get you not to commit the Gnostic heresy, which, you know, essentially they believe by, by believing the right things in your heart, your soul will escape the prison house and then go into the heavens. And all my students are looking at me going like, I think that's what my church teaches. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, no, it doesn't. And here, here's why. But yeah, I think we think the most important things that happen are in our minds. That thinking happens in our brains. I always tell people that the nervous system includes the brains, but goes to your fingertips and doesn't include your fingernails. <laughs> but yeah, the idea that if, again, if you go to engineering or medical training, those are my two favorite analogies because they're kind of uncontroversial. Like we don't download data to doc future doctors' brains. We sit, make them sit through ritual after ritual. We make them perform the rituals of education 
uh, before they can feel confident that they can act surgically or medically in the world or engineeringly, right? And so if we think about the most highly skilled people in our world who understand creation the best, they're all actively performing in scripted rituals that even while they're doing them, so coming back to the red heifer, while they're performing these rituals, they might not understand how they work. I use boot camp as a good example. How do you take a you know 60, 18 year old boys? Yeah, I was gonna ask, like, what do you understand about ritual given your military experience that others might not? I mean, that was, when I look back, like they're genius, like you're folding your underwear into four inch squares with a ruler and tweezers, right? And I remember thinking to myself, why are we doing this? This makes no <laughs> sense. And then when you don't do it right, they scream at you and they flip your, your, your bed up upside down and you know you're like why is this grown man screaming at the top of his lungs and throwing things because my my underwear was folded into four and a half inch squares rather than four inch squares <laughs> and now i look back and i'm like oh that was genius over the period of eight weeks you know they took kids off the street who didn't know anything couldn't do anything in a coordinated or disciplined or detailed fashion and we're all handling like live ammunition loaded weapons and performing actions in coordination with one another we're, you know, we're paying attention to detail, like things I, I thought I would have said I was incapable of doing at seven, I was 17 when I went in. And somehow through that matrix of rituals that has this deep tradition, they transform me. Like, I mean, people talk about boot camp, and I would, that was just Air Force. Imagine Marines where you actually go through like real arduous training, right? But like, it's like a religious experience. I always tell people it's the closest thing to a religious experience you can have outside of a religion, unless you think the military is a religion, which some people do. Um, so <laughs> I, I think what they're doing is just employing the best of what it means to, that they acknowledge fully that we are embodied individuals. And if you want 18 year old boys to think correctly, you grab their whole body day and night and you put them through the rituals that you know work to craft and sculpt their thinking and their vision of reality. And I think you turn to the Hebrew Bible, you turn even to the New Testament, which I think just reiterates the, the teaching of the Hebrew Bible. You know, when God takes Israel, he doesn't just be like, okay, now here's the theological propositions you need to get under your head, right? He sees them as entire bodies, social body and individual bodies, and he gives them a calendar and a matrix of rituals. And he says, you need to put your bodies into these practices. Okay, you might not understand something. That's okay, just do it. Uh, and you will see the world. You will see yourselves. You'll see your community. You'll see the others. You'll see the vulnerable differently than you could have otherwise. So I have a question about epistemology, right? How we know things. So we often think about the Bible as a text to be interpreted. So the verb that would best describe what we're supposed to do to figure out what God wants from us is reading. But is that how the Bible thinks about itself, right? Is that how the community that took the Bible as its guide to life traditionally understood its relationship to it? My analogy for this would be, I don't know if everybody has an Ikea near them. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. We are blessed. <laughs> if you haven't been to an Ikea, it's, you know, it's, it's, they sell furniture that you often have to assemble yourself, right? That's part of why it's cheap or cheaper. I think, you know, it, to me, it's like you can, you can read an Ikea, the instruction manual for how to assemble the smorgensborg because everything's in Swedish, right? Uh, <laughs> You could just sit down and read that, right? But I, I'm not sure what good that's going to do you or do anybody. Uh, the, the goal of the manual is to get your hands on the pieces and putting them together. I mean, you could leave everything in the boxes and just sit there and read that manual all day and all night. But it, uh, the artifice of what you're doing should become pretty immediately apparent that your community, your family needs to get in there. Because we bought like a sectional couch, a big, big couch. <laughs> 
that basically filled our house with boxes and like we needed all hands on deck and we needed <laughs> guidance and at the end of it we could appreciate it. yeah so i think it's very difficult to understand and the same thing again going back to science like can you imagine a scientist saying well we now know and you say well what what ritualized experiments did you perform in order that you could see this world this way and they go none i just did a thought experiment in my head and i think the, the <laughs> results are pretty amazing you know and we go well no we're not really interested in anything you have to say that's how twitter works you bozo right <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> let's not start on twitter but yeah that the the twitter hive mind right this this idea that it's really people who have put their bodies into these processes. And, and the question is like, well, who's scripting these processes? Why do they, what, why do, where do they get the gall? You know, where do they have the authority? Who should be accredited? Which I think is amazing because in the Hebrew Bible, the same questions come up. Like Yahweh appears in a, in a, in a burning bush and Moses is like receiving instruction from him. And then he's like, oh, wait a second. I don't think this is going to work. Nobody's going to listen to me, right? And uh, he actually has to be walked through this. And in that scene, I don't think it's too much to say that God actually accredits himself to Moses over time and circumstances to where Moses has good, historical, verifiable reasons why he should at least trust God to do the next thing that he's asked him to do. And, then, and, then, and there's more trust built up over and over and over. So it's not like people are blindly, like people are doling out rituals and then people are blindly following them. Um, there's good reasons to follow these rituals as they enter these ritual mat matrices. In much the same way that we ritualize a lot, a lot of our children's behavior, and our children trust us because they know, you know, on a good day, we ha have their good in mind, this is gonna end up in something good. And, and when they're teenagers, they do all the questioning and then later, hopefully they look back and say, oh, okay, I see why you were this way or whatever. Like we all do with our parents. Like, okay, now I understand why why they were doing this. So you were in a punk band. Yes. I often have used that metaphor to describe like biblical religion, like punk rock. Like what can you take, if you take anything from that experience of thinking about kind of the, the intervention that Hebraic thought or the biblical world makes into human affairs? Yeah, actually, it's an interesting connection because I had never made it, but I was talking to a musicologist who works on rock and punk, and he had made this connection for me that, you know, punk really has a prophetic edge to it. And so when I talk about punk, I'm not talking about anything from the 1990s forward uh, because punk was really... So not dookie, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Green Day is, I mean, they, they, they're artificial punk, right? They're mimicking punk. Um, <laughs> and one clear distinguishing factor is if you listen to real punk and i'm talking about british and american it's very politically charged it's very socially aware and it's it, and it's actually saying here's where we think you guys have gotten things wrong and it stands from you know it tries to naively some many times but it stands kind of in this transcendent position i see the world i see your playing in the field of the world's affairs and you are hypocrites or you're wrong or you need to stop and it's interesting this musicologist pointed out to me that Punk rock makes fun of religion endlessly and critiques it, but they never come after Jesus or Moses, right? Um, <laughs> because those were the guys who were saying, you're, I mean, they were, they were the punk rockers of their days, right? Uh, you guys are doing this wrong. You've got it wrong. And, and I am, and I can stand in the transcendent position and tell you. So I think that prophetic edge and that ability to kind of step socially out, outside and say, I don't care what you think about me. You need to stop doing this thing. Like, I see that all over the Hebrew Bible. And, and in fact, you know, you, you take Jeremiah, for instance. It's funny because Christians will often, they'll quote 
you know, the darndest things from scripture. You know, before, <laughs> before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. you know, they say this as it's delightful. And I'm like, there's another womb passage later in Jeremiah where he's like, why didn't someone stab my mother while I was a baby in my womb? And her, you know, uterus become forever great as my grave. So, yeah, that kind of like the ability to just say, like, I don't care. I'm on a mission. I'm doing this thing to offer the prophetic critique because somebody has to stand outside the circle and, and look in and say something's wrong here. So I think at 13 to 16 years old, when I was kind of in the punk skinhead movement, it was, a, you know, the island of misfit toys. Um, and you found solidarity with one another. And also, I think the community, like if you want to find like the most the community of teenagers who can most easily look past major personality flaws. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I looked around, there was a lot of, including myself, really annoying people that had serious personality flaws or like, you know, they, they did acid way too much or they were um, kleptomaniacs or whatever. And like people would still accept you in those communities. So yeah, I, there are lots of points of connection I can make loosely here. There's an amazing clip. It's like worth Googling listeners out there where Johnny Rotten talks. He's like, he's older at this point and he's on the BBC for, you know, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. And he's talking about his attitude towards the Beatles, whom he famously hated. Mm. <laughs> and it's this amazing clip where he talks about how important they were for music. And there's a part of the tradition. There is no Sex Pistols without the Beatles. And then the interviewer is like, but you didn't like him. And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly... The Sex Pistols played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I grew up in 1979 at Kane's Ballroom, a country and Western ballroom. And that started the punk rock movement in Tulsa. Uh, so the reason I was in a punk band was because the Sex Pistols played in 79, and that started a whole little subgroup of bands that eventually emerged into this underground music scene. There's a whole documentary on Tulsa punk rock underground music. I make famous cameos. Drunken pictures of me are in there, so as someone told me. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so favorite underrated Bible story. If you had to kind of peruse the catalog, right? Like everybody knows oh, the Israelites left Egypt. That's a, And it's a great story, maybe the most important one in the history of human thought and divine literature. But but if you had to pick one that's like maybe a B-side or, or even if it's, you know, not a B-side, but it's not as less emphasized, what's one that you're like, this is, people should read this one more? Man, that's hard. My first impulse is to say, well, actually, they need to reread the really famous ones because I think they're getting, <laughs> I think they're not getting them right all the time, or they're foc they're focusing on what I call shiny objects in the story rather than what the story is actually doing. One of the ones I love to slow jam with my students, though, is in Second Kings when the Rabshakeh comes up to the gates of Jerusalem. This is during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, yeah, and Isaiah. And I tell students, like, I'm like, hey, who here is on the debate team, right? And, and a few people raise their hands. I'm like, look, this is one of the best arguments I've ever heard in my life, right? And it's beautiful and eloquent. And, oh, I see you're leaning on that, on Egypt, that broken reed that will pierce any man's hand that leans upon it. And then I show them Hezekiah's seal that has, you know, the reeds of Egypt and the, and the vulture's wings, you know, and and, you know, he offers them uh, two menus of urine and poop or uh, their own fig tree and their own water or whatever. The, the rhetoric is beautiful. And then he ends with this kind of like, oh, you're going to tell me that your God is going to save you? Well, that's what everybody who we just destroyed said. And your God actually came to me in a vision and told me to come down here and destroy. And I'm like, <laughs> that. Like, and then I just, you can kind of see it in their faces. They're, usually everybody's just kind of like, dang. Um, and then I'm like, all right, you're Hezekiah. What would you do? Right. Uh, it is 
I don't think there's any better piece of rhetoric in Scripture that tests the limits of human reasoning, um, that push it all the way, and still require this particular action uh, from a trusted source. So That was a baller answer to that question. Oh, my God. That was really good. <laughs> wow. On one, I put you on the spot. On one foot, that was a really good answer. Okay, so last question. As an educator... You and you alluded to this earlier in the podcast. So you have this experience where you're taking in people with all these assumptions about the sort of thing the Bible expects from us, the place of the Bible in our educational and rhetorical lives. And you are here to kind of bring them into this kind of Hebraic culture, Hebraic world. What's what's like one of your maybe favorite stories of a student who kind of came in with expectation A and then left with conclusion B? Like, what's like a fun story of that happening? I don't want to call it a conversion story, but like, yeah, no, it is. I do feel like I'm converting people. Like I now, I, you know, I guess cause I'm at that age where I just don't care anymore. Uh, because <laughs> I'll, on day one, on most classes, I'm saying, look, we're, we're going to be studying the greatest intellectual tradition in human history, bar none, no competitors. And, and the greatest, you know, the, the, the most important and significant texts that have ever been written have been written in Hebrew, later translated in other languages, but th- this is it. This is like the most important stuff you'll ever read. And you can see students just going like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of revisit that point on the last day of class and be like, okay, now who thought I was blowing smoke on day one? And, you know, half the people will be like, <laughs> You know, yeah, I was, uh, and, and then, you know, and I'm like, okay, but who now sees there's really something to the, I wasn't making this up. And so, yeah, I, I actually had uh, one student who now works for the Center for Hebraic Thought part-time, but he was one of these, like, rah-rah, Plato, Aristotle, all the way. That's the greatest thing that ever happened uh, since sliced bread. And then uh, ran into him, I don't know, a month or two ago at a wedding of another uh, graduate and uh He's moving to Jerusalem to study Hebrew and Greek uh, in Jerusalem at the Polis Institute. And and he took my intellectual world of the Bible class. And I, like he had one of those moments in the class where I think I actually saw his face in the middle of the class, like where it's it all popped for him. And he's like, oh, I get it. Body, ritual, intellectual, philosophy, like it all just came together. Uh, and I know he had that moment, but I didn't know what happened to him after he graduated. So that was really encouraging I'm not trying to pervert people. I just want, I'm, you know, it's, it's really hard to get people excited about things if they refuse to like actually value the scriptures this way. And so for Christians and Jews, I'm like, let me guilt you into this a little bit. <laughs> let me shame you a little bit. All I want you to do is value these texts as much as you do a McDonald's menu or something like that. And, and, then, and then we can work from there. So Jews famously valuing the McDonald's menu. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So. No, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. <laughs> so actually, actually, I know I said that was the last question, but I, but I did have one more for you. So if you're somebody who like forget you're not coming from a religious tradition, right? Because like you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people t- typically who are coming from a Christian background. In in like in my own case, like you know, dealing with people coming from a Jewish background, I always find the more interesting experience is coming from somebody, and oftentimes it'll be guests in this podcast, by the way who will say, like, I'd love to come on the podcast, but, like, just so you know, like, I'm not religious or I don't believe in God or whatever it is. And I always 
enjoy those a lot because now I'm in the place of like, actually, you're going to pre- by the time this podcast is done, like you will appreciate the Hebraic world, right? Like, yeah. have you ever had like a good experience like that, wh- whether in, in a classroom or, or outside? Yeah, I, I, th- I, and we do have atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, sure. Muslim. Uh, I mean, we get all kinds of students here. It is predominantly Christian, but yeah, I, and I, I tell them as well, like if I were in a public university and I had any sway, I would make the Hebrew intellectual world a mandatory class for everybody. Um, or it should be a big chunk of Western Civ or something like this. Because how can you understand anything that's going on in the world today unless you understand its roots in the Hebraic, its unique roots in the Hebraic tradition and not in Central Asian or Chinese or African or uh, even Mesopotamian thought. You know, I used to say, uh, years ago, I used to say, well, you can't really understand the 20th or 21st century unless you understand Nietzsche. Like, you just need to understand a little bit about Nietzsche to understand what happened. And now I'm like, okay, you really can't understand who any of us are unless you understand what the Hebrew Bible is doing. Everything else is like a weird fairy tale about what we wish could have been the case. But it really is the Hebrew Bible that created this intellectual uh, reformation in its own day. I mean, that's important. Like if we're talking about the Iron Age, it's its own intellectual like tradition that broke against uh, the intellectual traditions surrounding it in many ways and continues to buck against all of these other intellectual traditions that seep in. So you can't get me to not be excited about that. Sorry. <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> or make extreme uh. statements. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Drew, thank you so much for being here. This is amazing. Uh, joy of my life. Add after that. <laughs> what a tour de force. Look, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The world we all live in, yeah, like the entire world that we live in, is completely incomprehensible without an understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Human equality, hope, redemption, the enormity of evil, and both the challenge and power of doing good. I mean, Hebraic thought is ground zero for all of this. So take it seriously. And if you do, your world, your life, your relationships, they'll all be richer and much more meaningful for it. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, please be awesome. Go ahead, write into Apple Podcasts, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.